0: Hello. Welcome to the Dear Writer Podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more
1: experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's
0: the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Writer. This is episode 55 and we're recording another one of our Talking Shop episodes where we have a bit of a chat about the books we are reading or resources that we are using to better our writing craft, but also have a bit of a chat about uh, the books that we are reading for fun. So like all of these shorter episodes, we will jump right into it. Sarah, what's your tool of the month this month? So this month I have been reading Save the Cat
1: Writes a Novel by Jessica Brody. So it's a book for novelists based on a popular screenwriting book series, which was originally written by Blake Snyder. And so the original Save the Cat, the
0: idea behind
1: the title, I suppose I should probably start with.
0: That would be helpful. It's a very unusual title, although I had heard of it. So, Well, if you have a
1: protagonist who doesn't have very many redeeming qualities at the beginning, the idea is that the protagonist must save the cat in quotation marks or perform you know some sort of worthy act so that you as a reader or a viewer if it's it's, you know on a movie or something that you don't completely switch off and you know disconnect with the book or the movie because you don't like the character um so that's where the title comes from
0: (laughs) makes sense makes sense
1: so The one that I read, as I said, was written by Jessica Brody, where she adapted it for novel writers. And it's a book that's primarily on story structure and gives you a template to work through to ensure that your novel is progressing in a way that makes sense and that will resonate with readers. So I figured that I'd go kind of through just the broad outline of the chapters and the story structure that they use just so just briefly you know it's divided into three different acts for the structure and so the idea is that you have to have these particular elements in your book for it to kind of make sense and that every decent book does have these elements of story structure within it and you know it's not trying to be formulaic or anything because some people might be like oh you know if you use that template then you're just going to get like a, a book that's really flat and has no real life to it I guess <laughs> if you know what I mean yeah but I kind of agree with Jessica Brody on this that I don't think it does that because I think the elements themselves are like so broad and they're really just like markers along your route to writing a novel and it's not gonna affect like the content of your book. So you can mm-hmm. still have a really great book and put it within these the structure and it'll make total sense. It can be as original as you want it. It's not gonna degrade your book in any way um or yeah. make it formulaic. And so that said um I'll go over the sort of elements as I've been calling them. <laughs> she doesn't call them <laughs> elements so that's just what I've named them. <laughs> but of each Sort of act so she says you know first you have your opening image and every book has an opening image and then there's the theme is usually stated usually by a character that's not your protagonist because it's usually something the protagonist has to learn throughout the book but it can sometimes be by your protagonist and if you're like us and have multiple protagonists often it
0: is stated by one of them we find in our books at least it'd be kind of hard to not have one of them say it <laughs> yeah especially when it's sort of in the beginning <laughs> when they're the only ones there although
1: you know they they don't necessarily it's not that they've learnt that it's like something that they've observed and they actually have to learn it by the end of the book and not mm-hmm. just kind of a wayward thought that you know drifts through so then the next one is the setup. So. Before anything gigantic and life-changing happens in your book, you know, you kind of have to establish a status quo, which is what the setup is about. And then there's the catalyst, um, or which we've referred to in the past as the inciting incident. So the thing that changes the character's world. And then there is a debate. So what goes on after the catalyst of, like, how do I deal with this? And then it goes into act two, which is a break into two. And the break into two is, like, they finally come to the decision and they're, like, you know, putting things into action. And then is the B story. So your external plot is kind of what, what happens. And then the B story is, like, the internal plot of what's going on in the characters. And then often there'll be new characters brought into the B story. And Jessica Brody calls the B story characters. And these characters serve to start teaching the theme and to help the character find internal change and then there's an element which she calls fun and games which isn't necessarily all fun and games but <laughs> it's kind of like what the premise is of what the book's about so fulfilling the premise that you've supplied on the blurb or so you know they have wins have losses and then you get to the midpoint and then after the midpoint, the bad guys start to close in, starts to raise the stakes a bit. And then you get to a point where all is lost, where the character thinks they've tried their hardest and they've failed and there's nowhere for them to go. They've just reached rock bottom. And then they have the dark night of the soul where they've basically got to <laughs> <laughs> debate with themselves about you know what to do now that so they're dramatic. at rock bottom.
0: <laughs> so dramatic. I love it. Knight, yeah, the Soul, it's amazing.
1: And then it goes into act three. And so you have the break into three is, again, they've had a debate about what to do. And so your break into three is now putting their decisions into action. And then it's the finale. So your sort of big final showdown and then the final image to close. So those are basically in a very nutshell like the the elements that the what she calls the beat sheet of save the cat and it is a very like when you go deeper and you read the book and you read into the elements you kind of see how it does really work together and it helps to raise the stakes in like a progressive way. But <laughs> in addition to this, that's to be honest, this only gets you to like chapter three. Oh my gosh. That <laughs> sound helpful though. Yeah, it
0: does. It sounds kind of, I feel like these story structures are really good for pacing.
1: I feel like for me, you know, the chapters kind of like one to three in this book were the most helpful chapters. The chapters beyond are mainly about genres and what Jessica Brody says Uh, not your mother's genres (laughs) that's how she describes them so they're not like you know romance or fantasy or science fiction that's not how she classifies it it's more it's more about sort of every book being able to be divided into 10 different categories based on the structure and the content of the story on so I guess more on a structural level then although like it does include like you know certain elements of your content as well I'm using the word elements a lot today apologize gelling with that word so I decided to briefly list each of these genres again each when she goes she goes into it a lot deeper so each genre she also has a chapter about the genre and what um, specific things you might find in that genre and then she provides a beat sheet for like a common a well-known work or title and so you can see how it all fits into both the genre and the save the cat template which is really helpful and then she provides like a bunch of the famous books and stuff that have also fit that genre so you can then kind of put it all together but just to describe the genres so she has sort of number one is why done it A mystery must be solved by the hero who may or may not be a detective during which something shocking is revealed about the dark side of human nature. And then the next one was rites of passage and the hero must endure pain and torment brought about by life's common challenges. And so that one was key life's common challenges. So it's not like, you know, pain and torment brought about by like an unusual situation. It's like, you know, normal death and dying and, Um, normal phases of life that you're going through so you know coming of age kind of stuff would fit into that and then there's institutionalize a hero enters or is already entrenched inside a particular group institution establishment or family and must make a choice to join escape or destroy it i feel like for ours, that would be like darkness set us free
0: oh yep yep i can see that
1: I originally was going to categorize it in a different genre, but I feel like it, it more fits into the institutionalized mm. one. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, our early ones don't, which I'll, when, when we get to that, I'll <laughs> tell you what I think the early ones are. But then, so there's also superhero, where an extraordinary hero finds themselves in an ordinary world and must come to terms with being special or destined for greatness. So she put the likes of Harry Potter. But interestingly, it's not his magic that makes him extraordinary. It's the fact that he's the chosen one because everyone in the world has magic. So that doesn't make him like any more special. And then there is Dude with a Problem, which is an innocent, ordinary hero finds themselves in the midst of extraordinary circumstances and must rise to a challenge. So I feel like when the rain falls is definitely dude with a problem (laughs) yes I'm not really sure about price of pandemonium she didn't say like things can cross several genres so okay I don't know whether it's a cross genre genre, yeah whether it's a cross genre one or whether I'm just not seeing it fully yet (laughs) so another one is buddy love So a hero is transformed by meeting someone else, including but not limited to love stories, friendship stories, and pet stories. So most of your romances would come under this umbrella. And then there was Out of the Bottle. An ordinary hero is temporarily touched by magic, usually involving a wish fulfilled or a curse bestowed. And the hero learns an important lesson about appreciating and making the most of reality. And I feel like this is... Probably closest to our ancient Greece novel.
0: I was thinking that as well when you were saying it. Yeah. Or at least a combination of this one and the one from When the Rain Falls.
1: Mm, Well, I was also thinking that it could be partly the next one as well, which is Golden Fleece. A hero (laughs) or group goes on a road trip of some type, even if there's no actual road, in search of one thing and winds up discovering something else themselves. (laughs) so I thought that it could be kind of that as well and I kind of thought darkness set us free might originally sit within this but then when I read institutionalized I was like "Mm, I think it's more institutionalized I would agree yeah there are kind of lots of travel in both of those stories that we wrote and they certainly need to discover themselves but yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's all I can say
1: (laughs) so and then the last genre that she wrote so there's 10 in total was monster in the house A hero or group of heroes must overcome some kind of monster, supernatural or not, in some kind of enclosed setting or limited circumstances. And someone is usually responsible for bringing the monster into being. So you like sort of Frankenstein, for example, where Frankenstein was limited to the getting revenge on the family. So that was like the establishment or the closed setting. Right. Yeah. But you know, you see a lot of horrors in that particular genre. Yeah, so those are obviously not your usual genres, but one way of categorizing
0: your book... It kind of makes sense, though. Yeah,
1: and you can kind of see what I... pandemonium.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I haven't
1: quite... I feel like it might be just dude with a problem again, but I'm not 100% sure. Hmm. Yeah, Hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to, like, think about it a bit. Oh, did I... I think I missed one, actually. Did I say full triumphant? No. No. Yes, so I missed one, which was full triumphant, where an underestimated underdog hero is pitted against some kind of establishment and proves a hidden worth to society. And that was a one that I thought could potentially be the price of pandemonium.
0: That one kind of fits. Maybe like a mix of that one with the
1: dude with a problem. Maybe. Whatever it was Maybe.
0: called. <laughs> Something like that. Hmm, don't know. But
1: yeah, so using those you know like as I said she then shows how well-known titles can fit into those genres and then lastly she also explains towards the end of the book how to pitch your novel using elements from the beat sheet which when I read I was like wow that make life so much easier like I do think there is a danger of getting a little bit formulaic with that I can't remember exactly (laughs) how she structured it but like she put like the elements within like the log line which then when you like put your book into that would then come up with like a log line and a sort of brief blurb she called it a synopsis but to me a synopsis is like a full rundown of your book so I don't like calling it synopsis (laughs) it's a blurb but yeah I think it was in general a very good book to read she's very the the way she narrates it is very energetic and I think it, it's refreshingly energetic mostly sometimes I felt a little slightly over the top <laughs> I, was, I was like okay okay like you can stop like being quite so
0: enthusiastic yeah
1: <laughs> it's like I get it <laughs> but you know like that's probably just me
0: (laughs) it's funny you're way too energized about this formulaic novel she was very energetic um funny
1: I didn't really realize well I did know that you can put that much energy into your writing and have it sound that energetic but (laughs) (laughs) it's frankly amazing how she manages to keep it up the entire novel (laughs) fun well book not novel but yeah yeah Anyways, as of so I know I've sort of gone on a bit with this, but as much as I've gone on, I've really only scratched the surface because those are basically the titles of the <laughs> chapters, or at least for the genres. The beat sheet was a bit more condensed down into like one longer chapter, but um, yeah. So I would highly recommend it, which is Save the Cat Writes a Novel by Jessica Brody.
0: It does sound very interesting and I really like the different spin on the genres. That's quite cool.
1: Yeah. I think it's very interesting to try and fit
0: your own books into and be like, where's my book search? (laughs) (laughs) Which genre have I accidentally written to? (laughs) Seems to be a a thing. (laughs) Pretty much.
1: So what was your tool of the month,
0: Ashley? So... This month I was thinking about the audience a lot because, you know, a lot of the papers and tools that I've brought onto this have been semi-related to our books but more, you know, like dystopian YA and historical fiction, things like that. So today I thought I would do one to appease the fantasy writers out there. So I have chosen... A article called The Rise of Strong Female Characters in YA Fantasy by Lydia Aldson and it's in the journal YA Hotline. It's from 2020 and it's in the Feminism and Fantasy Edition which is quite there's a lot of other really interesting articles in there. So I thought I'd uh, go over that with you and it is fairly I think quite broadly applicable to other books as well but, you know, it focuses mostly on female protagonists and female characters in fantasy. So the article starts off with an in introduction with a description of fantasy and a little bit about the history of the fantasy genre. So they describe it as magical, mythical creatures um, and adventure are all sort of topics that come to mind. And the sort of over, they call it the overarching theme that people sort of use to very broadly define fantasy is literature of or about the impossible and it stems from folklore fairy tales and myths which have obviously been around for thousands and thousands of years and even these sort of old myths and folk tales and things like that all have some of the same elements that current fantasy novels have so touching topics like morality the hero's journey I mean the presence of impossible things that happen so that was the introduction you know kind of getting us Into the genre a little bit, and then, you know, it kind of moves on. And then they start talking about the other common tropes that are found in fantasy. So, you know, the classic brave, handsome prince with the beautiful, helpless maiden that needs to be saved. So, that's sort of the jump that's come from, you know, old fairy tales and then had moved into the fantasy genre. And historically, this was pretty much kind of where the female characters ended. (laughs) Um, it was a very male-dominated genre, uh, so lots of masculinity and very, very rarely included female characters. And if there were any, they are typically you know, very one-dimensional and kind of only served the purpose of, like literally of the story of the male protagonist going along his journey or whatever the story may be. And she even kind of says it's present in Quite a few sort of recent YA fantasy books, so things like Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, um, and she says the Secrets of the Immortal series. So I it's like, actually quite interesting. Like they do have female characters, and I guess like Hermione's, although she's like stereotypical, like the smart one. If that makes any mm-hmm. sense, so there's not actually she's a, a lot of
1: character too.
0: Yeah, So there's not actually a lot of you know depth to the female characters so I found it quite hilarious that the author of this paper then specifically focuses in on Twilight (laughs) I was like okay where is this going so obviously Twilight's they classified as paranormal fantasy and they kind of describe Twilight as sort of a a turning point for having female protagonists in fantasy books not exactly in a good way though (laughs) so they kind of say that all the books Twilight and the ones that followed all had the same type of female protagonist so which is the two-dimensional very reactionary protagonist where all the secondary characters shape her decisions directly and I was like "Mm, yes that does sort of make sense like she's not really her own person she kind of is just determined by you know the male characters surrounding her basically
1: well I think she's presented very much as like the the victim of what's happening to her rather than a driver in her own story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. A helpless so, maiden that needs to be
0: rescued. Yeah. But I guess from the perspective of the helpless maiden, which is, I guess, yes. you're like, well, <laughs> they're the main character, but is it really much different? So apparently there was a, a study done where female teen readers were interviewed about their reactions to Twilight and Bella it's her name right, Bella. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it I came out of me and I was like, I haven't like what like, <laughs> like Bella in wow, where time. did that come from? <laughs> Pretty much. And the quote from the article was that female readers basically reject Bella and feel better about themselves because in comparison they have more defined personalities and interests, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, oh my gosh. I guess it's true. You're like, well, at least I'm not her. <laughs> I remember doing just on a
1: side note. I remember that one of my nursing lectures when back when I was in nursing school, it was on, I mean, I don't mean to make fun of any, any shape or form of like any family violence, but we had this pamphlet that, cause we had like some presenters come and they gave us this pamphlet that like, you know, showed the warning signs of like a controlling relationship and I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, Edward ticks every single one of these warning signs. Of, oh my god! Like threatens to kill himself if she. <laughs> like, oh dear! <laughs> like, oh my god! <laughs> like really, <laughs> it was, it was enlightening to to see yeah. how many of the warning signs of domestic violence he actually. Like emotional domestic violence.
0: Yeah, did you just watch Twilight? <laughs> or read Twilight? Well, it was
1: around that time, you see, because it uh, would have been like two thousand and two thousand oh, nineteen. Movies were and coming 10. out, eh? Yeah, that would make sense. It's fresh
0: yeah. in your mind. Twilight. <laughs> exactly.
1: Sorry, continue.
0: No, it's fine. So, so that sort of brings us not exactly recent um, YA books, but kind of takes us to the Twilight-ish era. But thankfully, after that, there is quite a big shift from the post-Twilight years, which I find hilarious how Twilight's the turning point. I don't know, but love it. Where suddenly we get a lot more, you know, more genuine to a degree um, of female protagonists. So these are the ones she lists, you know, the Hunger Games and Divergent, these kind of female protagonists who she... like defines them as female protagonists who are tough and reject anything too feminine which I guess is a good thing but also a bad thing at the same time it's like they've swung kind of the other way and I did hear that
1: like a lot of people felt a disconnection with catness from the beginning and to like the only reason they at least Suzanne Collins successfully managed to save the cat which was prim (laughs) in this story right because she was so cold and tough that people couldn't connect with her until, you know, the only thing you see is how much she loves her sister. And so you're like, okay, <laughs> you're like, I can okay. get on board with this character for now. Maybe she's deeper than what you suspect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have a quote here, which I found amusing. So the the author says that um, Katniss and Tris crushed gender stereotypes and ate girls like Bella Swan for breakfast. <laughs> Cracked me up. And she continues on, they didn't need a man to give them value, in brackets, but there were love interests regardless. <laughs> Which I think is really a key part of
1: teen fiction, though, is the love yeah, interest.
0: definitely. Mm. Definitely. So then the author kind of goes on to say that, hey, yeah, there's, you know, it was great that they made you know these a lot stronger female protagonists but obviously there's you know a lot of room to make more authentic female characters where she kind of says they kind of just made it sound like you know physical strength equals a strong female character where that's obviously not the case (laughs) and that you know more accurate representations of women in fantasy are now desired and you know ones who are not just strong or not just like Bella Swan Um, (laughs) characters that are well-rounded multifaceted. And this is my favorite one, have more realistic emotions. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, And you know kind of also saying that you know female protagonists can have weaknesses as well like they don't just have to always have strengths which i guess she kind of felt is what happened when they shifted from twilight to you know the massive shift to the other ones that you have all of these strengths and they're all amazing but you're kind of like maybe we need ones who are a little bit more realistic and you can of go through that too (laughs) yeah because you read something you're like i Maybe I could like be like that for like a day. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Before it's like too much for me. So she then kind of goes on to say that, you know, there has been change in this direction recently. She uses e- examples of Ray and Star Wars. I was like, yeah, unfortunately I don't like Ray very much though. It no, so didn't, didn't really either. vibe with me. I was like, I don't like her. And then I have never read the series, but Selena from Throne of Glass series apparently I haven't read oh. that but it sounded kind of cool and then the more updated ver- versions of Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast that have been like the films and I was like yeah I can kind of see that like they kind of try and make them be a bit more than just the princess the distress. <laughs> yeah. yeah so I so, was yeah I can kind of see that and you know then they she kind of went on to say and other films as well like Disney's Brave and I was like actually my rangers love Brave that's like all of them, I think apart from two, Brave is their favorite Disney movie. And I was like, well, that must Interesting. mean something. Yeah, so I thought that was quite cool. And then like Moana as well. So more really female characters. Oh, same, it was so sweet. <laughs> so, so sweet. So yeah, so just kind of saying there's been, you know, kind of sum it up, there's been fantasy, uh, female protagonists or just female characters in general and fantasy didn't have the best start. <laughs> They at least started to have some female protagonists in literature, I guess, in the early ish 2000s, but they were still quite one dimensional and not really a good representation of actual relatable female characters. And that there has been a bit of progress made recently to try and uh, give us, you know, female protagonists, especially in fantasy, who are a bit more well rounded. So I found that very interesting. So anyways, that was, the article was called The Rise of Strong Female Characters in YA Fantasy by Lydia Eldston in the journal YA Hotline from 2020. But yeah, if you're interested in that kind of thing, one, they are open access. So you should check out the Feminism and Fantasy Edition. There are a lot of really interesting articles in there, which, you know, if that's the genre you're right or just interested in in general, you might find something, you know, some interesting information in there. Uh, so we should probably move on to what we are reading this month. So Sarah. So I started reading a historical fiction book about ancient Greece. Exciting.
1: Um, well, called The Tides of War, and it's written by Stephen Pressfield. And oh, no. <laughs> so I'll read part of the blurb. So the part of the blurb goes because it's a very long blurb. So I just sort of took the bit at the top. Narrated from Death Row by Alcibiades, bodyguard and assassin, a man whose own love and loathing for his former commander mirrors the mixed emotions felt by all Athens. The Tides of War tells an epic saga of an extraordinary century, a war that changed history, and a complex leader who seduced a nation. So it's very interesting to read because of the parallels, obviously, with our own book even though they're set in different cities and different times. Like I chose this one in particular because it wasn't fully about Sparta, for one.
0: It's hard to find ones that aren't about Sparta though. Exactly. So I was like, well, this is about Athens. So it was a bit closer to Thebes.
1: And I, I can't really remember to be honest and I'll explain why shortly. But I think the time period is like somewhere around the Peloponnesian War okay it's just before we have our book set set, so I kind of thought it was a good place to start but the only thing that I'm struggling with is that something that Ashley's talked about before is that although it's undeniably well written and I think Stephen Pressfield is a great writer it is a very literary style and I have decided <laughs> I clearly have very commercial tastes. <laughs> yeah. I find the narration very wordy and it reads a bit like an academic article rather than the story. Yeah. And well, uh, I mean, like there is like a, a story thread to it. It's just that like the, the wording that he uses is very academic and very like some of the vocabulary like you wouldn't come across in everyday life at all. And because of this, I have to focus quite hard to understand what's going on as my brain just wants to switch off and is just not interested. So in conclusion, I guess if you enjoy literary fiction with historical background, this could be the book for you. But personally, I do prefer clean cut speech and clarity in writing rather than sort of long and complex words and paragraphs.
0: It seems to be a thing. In mm, ancient Greek historical fiction like, I it's like a chore I I'm like, like a, it
1: exactly and I'm like I don't know that I'm gonna finish like I'm about five chapters through and I'm like mm, I this is a very long book and I'm not sure that I have that sort of stamina <laughs> <laughs> so well, yeah
0: hopefully our book's a bit more digestible I, th- I think it's
1: ours is very commercial compared to these ones that we've been trying to read. <laughs> So, maybe, you know, I think that's probably going to be a selling point because I'm sure people want to read about ancient Greece, but not everyone wants to read like a story that's more like a thesis and a yeah. story. <laughs> so, so, maybe, you know, that, yeah, I also do well because of that. I don't know. But, anyways, what have you been reading, Ashley?
0: <laughs> well, similar vein to yours, except mine's actually like a thesis rather than you know a novel that reads like a thesis so I've been doing a lot of research for our ancient Greece book recently kind of got to I guess kind of it's not quite the turning point in the book but it's getting close to it where things start to kind of drift in another direction which means I had to do a lot more research to kind of put everything into context if mm-hmm. that makes any sense
1: yeah we're sort of coming up to the finale but not quite there yeah yet. we're
0: not quite there yet we're but on the it, build <laughs> yeah but that obviously means that there's still a lot of elements that go into the finale start to come in now which we weren't quite we, we hadn't done the re- super super thorough research on that yet and I've been requiring it basically so I found a book which it's called The Western Way of War, Infantry Battle in Classical Greece, and it's by Victor Davis Hansen. It is actually, well, it's trying to figure out how to say it's a academic work, but it's written more for the lay person. Yeah. It's like not an easy, easy read, but it's not in like full-on academic language. Like it's it reads like a novel kind of. Yeah, so the the author, I just have a little bit about him that I copied from Wikipedia because he seems like quite the guy. He's an American conservative commentator, classicist, and military historian. He's been a commentator on modern and ancient warfare and contemporary politics for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the National Review, the Washington Times, and a number of, number of other media outlets. So he's like quite, this is like his thing. <laughs> and I thought I'd just read the book because it's actually, this book has been fascinating. And even if it's kind of, even if you're not into, you know, you're not doing research for a historical fiction book, it's quite you know an interesting read regardless and readable as well so the blurb is the western way of war draws from an extraordinary range of sources greek poetry drama and vase painting as well as historical records to describe what actually took place on the battlefield it is the first study to explore the actual mechanics of classical Greek battle from the vantage point of the infantrymen the brutal spear thrusting the difficulty of fighting in heavy bronze armor which made it hard to see hear and move and the fear Hansen also discusses the physical condition and age of the men weaponry wounds and morale this compelling account of what happened on the killing fields of the ancient Greeks ultimately shows that their style of armament and battle was contrived to minimize time and life lost by making the battle experience as decisive and appalling as possible. Linking this new style of fighting to the rise of constitutional government, Hansen raises new issues and questions old assumptions about the history of war. So it's very, very interesting because it kind of talks about how the the Greeks kind of just like wanted a one and done battle and how that's kind of like, you know, that's where it, I guess like Western war began and then kind of looking at where it is now when you think about like some of the extended war campaigns and it kind of goes through that transition as well because like in early Greece it's got like 800 to like 600 BC it was like a one and done battle like in front of the city and you know the winners won and the losers lost and that was kind of it and then you get to sort of the time period that we look at and you start to get like the Peloponnesian War and a couple of other ancient Greek wars, like the four hundreds and the three hundreds, where you start to get more extended campaigns, and then that kind of bleeds into you know more modern warfare where you get like I don't know decades long wars or you know things like that. So that's been quite interesting. But the bit that I've liked the most is because it's from the perspective of the soldier, which is very helpful for what we're trying to do with our book. So it's provided a lot of interesting insight into you know like how they would literally have to carry the shield or like how they wore their helmets before battle like they'd have them pulled all the way back because it was too heavy if it was like pulled forward and how like every soldier had a slave to carry most of the armor because it was so heavy and then they dress like some of them were like five minutes before the actual battle they would dress because it's so heavy and like stuff like that which I found very interesting so it's been interesting interesting yeah, like lots of random facts. Sounds very helpful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'll talk about the hilarious, I sent Sarah this, but I found it so funny about how, you know, they always talk about destroying crops and stuff. Back then it was like a massive, you know, like, oh, they burnt like the wheat fields. Like it's going to cripple our, you know, food stability and food supply. <laughs> they are saying that like the grain fields are only actually burnable two weeks of the year when they're like a specific dryness. <laughs> And that's also the time when they have to harvest. So it was actually quite a problem if you wanted to burn someone else's grain fields because you would have to forfeit your own harvest season to leave like two weeks before your harvest season to get to someone else's harvest season to then burn Their wheat in this like specific two week period when it's dry enough, and then return back to your wheat or your grain to be able to harvest it and not like be of detriment to your own community. I was like, that's such a good point. I didn't even think of that, especially because most of you know the hoplites were just farmers, except for Sparta, obviously. So I was like, that's so amusing.
1: <laughs> and then you know there was also, I think a section saying how you know a lot of crop destroying like other types of crops were also like unmanageable because (laughs) it would take like forever to to chop down like
0: oh yeah because I think olive trees sometimes the trunks or like the sprawling trunks can be like up to two meters in diameter and like if you try and like send some like soldiers to try and like hack it down with an axe they'd be there for hours and hours and hours trying to like destroy olive trees but then it just kind of acted as like pruning so then like the next season it would just be like back to normal again so so amusing yeah. so I found random facts that you're like this is hilarious picturing these like Spartan guys like having to like take their armor off because they're so hot from like chopping at this olive tree <laughs> for hours and hours in a field oh dear. <laughs> I
1: can see you can make like I'm thinking more like Monty Python kind of style where you could make some quite hilarious comedies out of that
0: Yes, yes.
1: That would be funny. Anyways. I'm
0: just thinking about myself. Like in the garden last weekend, I was uprooting. My spinach went to seed and it grew as tall as me. And I was like trying to uproot it. And I'm like, it's just like this little spinach plant. And it, the root ended up being 30 centimeters into the ground. Like I was struggling and I was like pulling it, trying to like pull it up. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, lol. Like imagine me. It like ancient Greek hoplite, like trying to destroy someone's like, spinach crop in Greece and I can't even like uproot the spinach plants like two-person job (laughs) anyways (laughs) it's funny so that's the um the western way of war by Victor Davis Hanson if you wanted to check it out
1: okay I suppose we should round this up so if you would like to be on our author spotlight series then you can apply by going to lindisoncreations.com hovering your mouse over the podcast tab in the main menu and clicking
0: on the Be Featured on Dear Writer, which will take you to an application page. And next time on Dear Writer, it's uh, one of our main podcasts, and we're going to be talking all about subplots, which should be interesting, whether we plan them, how we decide what they are, and things like that, which should be very interesting. I'm looking forward to it yeah and if you'd like to know more about us and any of our writing projects you can visit us at lindersoncreations.com or you can get in contact with us on facebook or instagram under the handle linderson creations. if you enjoy the show then please
1: rate and review us on apple podcasts subscribe on your podcatcher of choice tell your friends about us and we'll be back next week so happy writing everyone